from sunny Los Angeles. I have some announcements and dates for you before we start the show. One, I'm going to be at Quimby's in Chicago September 28th. Two, I will be at CXC in Columbus after that. Three, I am hosting two events in Portland, Oregon in honor of Fun Home the Musical. I'm doing a reading October 5th with musical guests Dear Nora. And then October 8th, I'm doing Sagittarian Matters Live! It's a brunch show with producer Chris, producer Ponyo, Kaya Wilson, and other special guests. It's free, and you can get more information through my website or many social media handles. Okay, on with the show. Sagittarian Matters, Sagittarian Matters, what's the Friend to the podcast, Morgan, have you ever wondered what would happen if you had to live on a plane and you could never have liquid coconut milk or liquidy peanut butter ever again? I have. I have nightmares about no liquidy peanut butter in my life all the time. What's the solution? Well, Nicole, today I brought for you powdered peanut butter with chocolate. It's Mighty Nut powdered peanut butter. Also consider camping. It is summer. We're in the summer right now, transitioning into fall. And maybe you need a coconut milk, something or other while you're out in the world and you just want to throw it in your suitcase and go. Okay. Okay. This is me stirring. I'm an avid traveler. I do drink coffee and sometimes mushroom coffee in my hotel room. (laughs) And so coconut milk powder could be for me. I just mixed some up with some water and you made quite a face. What's that about? Don't drink it straight. There's this thing about coconut sometimes, maybe you guys have experienced this, where <clears throat> it like tastes like scalp. <laughs> Do you taste like dirty scalp? Dang it. What about, how about we say soap? No. Scalp. I meant scalp, like head skin. I don't lick head skin. I don't either, but that's what it smells like when it's really gross, like a dirty, I mean, come on, we've been dirty punks in our lives. Never. Mm. This wet peanut butter. Okay. Mighty Nut Peanut Butter & Co. Powdered Peanut Butter. Morgan went ahead and added some water to it, and it does taste good. It's so delicious. I would eat this as frosting. Okay, I want to say, speaking of frosting, mm. there is a really great recipe in vegan cupcakes that go over the world that is for cashew cardamom cupcakes. And the frosting requires of you to get some powdered soy milk to whip it up into the into the like kind of granular, stiff frosting mix Mm. you could use this coconut milk powder for that it's made by native forest instant exclamation point just add water they make great coconut milk i just the powder is like maybe good for specific uses i just want to say about this peanut butter can we backtrack for just a minute one thing about this peanut butter that's really incredible is what if you like a stiff peanut butter what if you like a loose peanut butter you have options (laughs) you can make it your favorite consistency and it's like silky smooth not gritty at all this is really good peanut butter well, the question remains, could you just add water to your normal peanut butter and have oh. a similar feeling? Maybe. But would it be chocolatey? <laughs> good. Good call. Thank okay. you. Okay. So, <laughs> peanut butter and company, Mighty Nut Powdered Peanut Butter. It has 85% less fat calories than traditional peanut butter. No, thanks. One gram of fat. Oh, it's 1983. <laughs> and I'm just going to say, if you're... Mm-hmm. Nut is only boasting five grams of protein. You do not get to put a barbell next to it Just on the label. Two five, tablespoons is so totally reasonable. Five grams is not barbell worthy. Oh, I'm so so ripped. I just had five grams of protein. I got ripped on five grams of protein. <laughs> you did not. I did. <laughs> you wouldn't lift a pencil for five grams of what? protein. Wow, look at these guns. I only eat five grams of protein a day. Uh, Don't follow my nutritional advice. Thank you. All right, Morgan, thanks for bringing me the powdery things I never knew I needed. I know. Powders is the way of the future. I love a dry food. Also, you said people can put the powdered peanut butter on top of ice cream. Mm-hmm. Anywhere, everywhere, in a smoothie, on an ice cream, whatever, in a celery. On a, I'm putting you on the spot here. You want to tell me the kind of crockery you put on ice cream? Ritz! Oh, my God! Ritz! They're so good. Eat them on everything. Also, serve them with all your fanciest stuff. I'm not getting paid by Nabisco. Don't support them, whatever. But, like, get a generic, whatever. Just do yourself a favor. Put on the, put on the Ritz. I 
Just they taste really good. And we may have talked about this on the podcast before, but will you tell us how do you make a thin mint at home in like five minutes? I think we did this where it was like a Ritz and then you do melted chocolate with like mint extract and you yeah. dip them. Yeah. And you chill them. Yeah. It was incredible. And then you're like, well, fuck you, Girl Scouts. <laughs> Wait, the Girl Scouts are cool. I know. I'm just kidding. I was a Girl Scout. On my honor, I will try <laughs> to not diss the Girl Scouts, but they do use palm oil sometimes, even though it's been greenwashed and they say it's sustainable. Yeah. And they do, but they do have like a secret vegan line that was like made in the Midwest or the East. So if you're not a dairy eater, you can like order them directly or something weird. But any hot tip. All right. Thanks for these hot tips, Morgan. Hot tip. Jillian Tamaki is the co-creator of the graphic novels Skim and This One Summer, which she wrote with her cousin Mariko Tamaki, who has been on this very podcast. Go find her episode. Jillian is also the author of Super Mutant Magic Academy and the short story collection Boundless, out now with Drawn and Quarterly. I caught up with her at SPX this year. We sat at the outdoor bar of the Marriott Hotel, enjoying zero beverages, while producer Ponyo wore her cans and worked the levels. You can find her and her illustrations, which we talk about a lot in this podcast, at JillianTamaki.com. Now please enjoy my talk with... Jillian Tamaki. Jillian Tamaki, welcome to Sagittarian Matters. Hey. What's your sign? Aries. Oh. Hard Aries. What does it mean to be a hard Aries? Oh, I just, I'm not on a cusp of anything else, I think. I was born on the same day as Posh Spice. Oh, really? Where do your similarities and differences... I mean, I, I don't know her personally, so... Yeah. <laughs> I think that Emily Dickinson may have my birthday, mm-hmm. and Brad Pitt at least was born in the same week. Sure. I don't know what we have in common. Sure. I feel like Adolf Hitler always comes up, and you're like, oh, Aries, like, that's oh, that's Adolf Hitler's sign. It's, you know, very forceful. Forceful Personality. Driven? Very goal-driven. Yeah. I have a lot of Capricorn in my chart which listeners are tired of hearing, but I feel like that makes me very diligent, earthbound and driven and maybe less fun than an Aries hard work. And like even less fun than less fun than any other sign, except for maybe Virgo is tied. Always been into astrology. The little bit, just a little bit. Cause my mom visited psychics when I was a kid Mm -hmm. and she was, I think she got my chart done when I was a child. Okay. And so I knew I was a Sagittarius, but in my early 20s, someone said, do you have a Capricorn moon? And I, uh-huh. everything made sense because I never felt as fun as like the teen magazine Sagittarius who's like playing basketball and right. so fun and loves to travel and nothing can hold her down and she loves to party. And okay. I was, I never have felt all of it like that. Well, I just have noticed that I think interest in astrology has is really high right now like uh, with friends and I can never tell how seriously people are take it or if it's just like a fun thing or in like a little bit of a hobby or like kind of a collective humor touch point you know what I mean like we can all like make fun of Gemini season or whatever the hell they call it but um but I can't but some of times it seems serious so I'm not I can't tell Really, yeah. but it, I just have noticed it is really uh, a trend amongst friends and people that I know, and I'm wondering why that is. But you know, maybe that's a different podcast. Well, I think it's the witch thing that's happening. You know, hmm. where I actually had a friend and she wanted to have a feminist roundtable to talk about the uprise of witchcraft amongst our peers. Right. I mean, isn't that a, like kind of a loss of? collective organized religion and society you still want some sort of spirituality in your life or something and so we have these like other compensation and like especially within like the queer community or different feminist communities where you're like where organized religion isn't saying anything that you really want to hear but then you still kind of have that need for spirituality in your life as a human so then yeah yeah that's my you know thought on it but who knows i'm not i'm not an avid follower of it I I do and I don't. Like, I don't like 
let it dictate. I kind of take what I like and leave the rest. So I don't let it dictate what's going to happen. But when I read something that resonates, I'm like, oh, yeah, totally. Right, right, right. (laughs) Anyway, okay, I have so many questions for you. I often feel like, did you ever watch, like, on SNL, Chris Farley had this character and he interviewed people and he would be like, hey, Al Pacino, do you remember when you did this thing and you you were in this movie and then you said this really cool thing? That was really cool. That's generally how I feel on the podcast all the time. Okay, I just remember that. That was my era of SNL. I've had a Chris Farley resurgence. I think even more than horoscopes, I believe in Chris Farley. Sure, he is your god. Yeah. Okay. Like, when I talk to students, I'll forget that they don't know my references, and I'll be like, you son of a bitch. Oh, that's happening more and more. I mean, I don't know how old you are, but I'm 37. I'm 37, yeah. And so now there is stuff where people are only encountering something for the first time, where I'm just like, oh, no, that's like the second time that's come around. But it's, it's... pretty interesting. <laughs> well, like, I had Creepers yeah. the first time around, yeah. and now I'm debating whether I want to go back there. I, they don't let your foot flex, so I don't know. Yeah. I, I pick and choose. I, there is some stuff that I do genuinely like, and not just for nostalgic reasons. So Yeah. yeah. I, yeah, it's one of my friends, he's our age, he's like about 35, 36, and he was working at BuzzFeed, which is full of 22-year-olds, right. and he thought that he was really blending in pretty well. Right. But then after he left, he had drinks with some of them, and they basically were like, see this like gif of Steve Buscemi wearing a backwards baseball cap saying, like, what's up, fellow kids? Right. They were like, this is how we see you oh, in the office. That's, that's not a compliment at all. I did, I, when, I, I mean, I, when I started teaching, I was 26 or 27, and um, I definitely felt like, okay, you know, I'm a little older than the students, as it should be, you know, but... Uh, I still, um, I'm on the wavelength, you know, and now, <laughs> now I'm just like fully like you are teenagers. I am a, an old person. That's fine. Well, you have a fully formed frontal lobe. <laughs> like maybe you don't say that, but I mean, it's just, you know, if, if no, you're but undergrads. I, but more importantly, I don't, I, I think I, you know, you stop sort of identifying on at, with them on that level, you know, you really do there is a mental like distance which uh, is probably useful but uh, <laughs> I, it was a transition from when I started teaching to now-ish yeah, I, I had moments where I was like why don't high schoolers like me like yeah, dude I'm punk I'm so old but I was like you guys I have tattoos like come on we're talking about comics and they were like we really don't care. Like, you're a geezer. Right. I mean, I don't think tattoos signify what they used to either. I would have been, growing up in Kansas, if a teacher came in and was like, you know, kids, I have tattoos on my fingers, I would be like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> Times have changed. I wouldn't... Because I think the cool thing should, I mean, should naturally then be no tattoos, no social media. Like, that's what I hope. Because everything needs to be a reaction, right? Like, yeah. to what came before you. So that's what old people are doing. Young people shouldn't be doing that. They should think that that's really lame. Like, no social... You're... No, they, sh- they shouldn't be on Facebook because that's where their parents are. That's true. <laughs> I mean, they're on... They do... They have Snapchat. They, I'm sure they have something else now that I don't know about. I'm not allowed to know about. I don't mean to pause at myself. Oh, I'm so old because I'm in my 30s. But I just... Compared to them, like, having to learn slang words and then try them out with my friends. Being like, oh, this is lit. I mean, yeah. It's... Well, we're in a, a little niche community slash industry that is very youth obsessed and uh so i think we're aware of it but then it makes that difference a little starker yeah agreed so you do you still teach i don't teach i stopped teaching when i moved away from new york uh so that's been about two and a half years but i taught you know for almost the entire time i was in new york just 10 years so yeah i taught at uh, SVA and uh, Parsons. Mm. Cool. Yeah. Did you teach? Il- did you teach illustration? I taught cartooning um, and illustration. Wow, yeah. it's nice they let you teach cartooning. Yeah, this was at SVA. It was. I mean, this was when I first started teaching at SVA a long time ago. The first classes were cartooning classes, and they were so different from illustration. Like the kid, there was first of all many. There were less kids in the class. I mean, I don't know for whatever reasons, but there were, I only had like seven kids in one of the courses, which was 
you think that that would be great because it would be very one-on-one, but it was like really too small a class to have like an effective class room dynamic. But um, but they had they. But I I think I did in teach enjoy teaching illustration a little bit more um, because it was. Um, the way I had been taught, I was got a design slash illustration education, so that was more what I was familiar with was cartoons. I'm totally self-taught, so yeah. um, I didn't really have a reference point for how to teach somebody that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Whereas, and I, my attitude towards cartooning is so I know that there's like a technical academic approach but my attitude towards it is always just like just do it make it interesting and legible and like you're good to go you made a comic like yeah so yeah well I like the idea of coming at it from an illustrator perspective I came at it from kind of a punk perspective of not people would try to tell me the rules of comics and I'd be like fuck you man because you made zines before or okay yeah yeah because I made zines first and then making comics was just I basically started publishing my illustrated diaries and then I started editing them more and more for privacy or for whatever, for story. And then I just kind of went from there into doing longer and longer comics. And so I kind of had to then learn like, okay, I had to put the things in this order so that people read them correctly. Mm-hmm. You know, I had to learn everything like a caveman. Yeah. I felt like, is there anything you had to learn like a caveman or any kind of mistakes you made when you started cartooning? Um, uh yeah, I mean everything. <laughs> I, mean, I didn't know what I was doing at all. Um and I think a lot of that was actually really technical. Like I remember making my first scene and like not realizing that you couldn't have bleeds because then it would cost you like an extra like whatever, like $40 or $30 to like cut off the ends yeah. like just stuff like that where I guess maybe it's not so much of a big deal now that everything's like published online but just like yeah. stuff like that or like what um, you like how, what a bitmap's gonna look like printed out like that kind of like totally technical stuff where I was just muddling through but at the same time I was doing a lot of illustration mostly illustration editorial illustration at the time so um it was a steep learning curve all over the place. <laughs> um, but, by fire. Yeah, but it's I've been really lucky. I felt actually fairly prepared, which is something a lot of my students don't say, that they feel prepared to be professionals. But I felt very prepared. I didn't feel like uh, lied to <laughs> by anybody. And I felt as prepared as you can be. Nobody can be like totally prepared for the world or like an industry or yeah. or a career or anything like that yeah. so yeah well with that said what are your top what's your top what's your advice for young illustrators be they in school or rogue rogue um that's such a hard question and i get it a lot and and i'm almost like hesitant to like give any advice i feel like i've given so much advice over the years and it's just it's there's so much advice period from everybody like all over the internet and it's there for the taking and like there is no like silver bullet piece of advice that you can get that then makes your career click or anything that's one reason but the uh, another reason is that I just feel like the industry has completely changed since when I started which was you know I graduated 2003 I worked in video games for two years and then was like moonlighting doing freelance stuff and then became freelance in 2005, like, full-time. Um, and that was just, like, a totally different time, you know, in terms of, like, the sheer volume of people trying to be illustrators or be cartoonists. Um, illustration itself was totally different at that time. Like, we... Um, the style, <laughs> the the voice um, was much different, much less crowded and much different than it is now. And so I just feel like whatever worked for me um, might not even be applicable anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, like um, I sent out postcard promotion, like yeah. mailers, you know, and yeah. that worked great for me. I don't know if it would work. I don't know. Like, cause I'm just not at that stage anymore, right. Yeah. Of starting out of like, what it is what is it like to be an art director in 2017 like um in this new media landscape i mean i just kind of get the impression have an instagram 
account and be good enough yeah. and have a unique enough voice, which has always been true, right? Yeah. Like, you can do everything in right but if the work isn't it doesn't need to be amazing but it just needs to be useful mm-hmm. or compelling enough or good enough and um and get and get your work out there quote unquote whatever that means and um that's all you can do yeah. you know and not stop basically which is valuable <laughs> yeah it, it is just start and don't stop like that has always been the advice because and I, I didn't it, that seems so pad and so like simplistic but from teaching I think you probably realize too like that just to put yourself out there is like beyond the capability of a lot of people where they don't have the self-confidence or they think later 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 or like I'll do it when I'm ready whatever again that means and it's like oh just start like yeah who cares you know for me especially teaching comics I see a lot of perfectionists yeah and it really inhibits their productivity and then you know they can work forever on something in their house and try to make it perfect but then by the time it's perfect enough they don't even like it anymore yeah I mean I don't I'd actually (laughs) I think perfectionism is just you know I've said this before I think it's just like a fear like in and of but it's like an honorable kind of fear and cowardice even you know um cowardice is a harsh but but, yeah but you don't have to put yourself on the line right if you never release anything or you never put something out then you're you're safe you know it's and it, there's no risk in that if you're just oh it's always waiting to be perfect and um so i'm just am like eh, just learn on the job yeah you know what i mean like i have so much work that's just out there forever that i don't like like it's fine it doesn't kill you no, and there's no blacklist. Like, there's no blacklist somewhere. <laughs> um, I mean, there might be, but that's probably just because you're an asshole, not because your work is bad. Because you were hard to work with. Oh, yeah, People would be like, I don't want to... Somebody over or whatever. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure there are informal little blacklists like that, but it's not because your work is not good enough or anything like that. And your work doesn't need to be that good. It just needs... I, well... I'm coming from an illustration point of view, yeah. though. Yeah. I think, I mean, it's kind of the same. It's just... Yeah. It's like one of my friends is like, you know, I, I mean, I honestly think a lot of people are as talented or more talented than me, but I just keep putting stuff out oh, and I'm yeah. driven. And so that's the only thing that separates us. There's, there's no correlation between talent and your inevitable success. Um, and that was like very shocking to learn immediately sort of after I graduated because there were people that were much better than I was in school, but then they just never transitioned to being a professional and then they never can make work without a deadline from a teacher. They can never be, you know, make the website. They can never do the things that you need to do. Um, they can never promote themselves. And so that, it, it, does, it doesn't go anywhere. And frankly, you just get somebody who just keeps on making work just surpasses you so fast. Um, and so that was a very surprising thing to learn when I was a student. And then as a teacher, that becomes very clear where you'll have classes and classes, classes of people, and you'll just have these phenomenally talented people, but they just, they can't transition to being a, not even a professional, just like not a student anymore. Yeah. (laughs) Um, and, um, Whereas I've seen people with, you know, talent that is uh, quite middling, you know, and, but they are successful professionals because they, um, they find something that works, you know, and like, I have a lot of respect for that, even if I don't like their work, like I have to respect somebody that like can, you know, um, make a career out of this. There's people that whose careers I am like, God, I hate their comics, but I'm like, tip my cap you know i'm just like uh, totally i'm like they're fucking doing it and that's that's a whole different skill set you know and that's something that you can get better at i mean you can get better at all of it but you know it's it should be kind of empowering i think like to know that 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 there is this other it's not just god-given you know like touch on the head of genius or something that makes people succeed or not succeed that should be really empowering to know that yeah, and I i mean, I was just talking to somebody on last week's episode of the podcast about how, you know, even artists who people look up to who have made, you know, 
some of the things that are touchstones in their libraries or their galleries, I mean, those people felt self-doubt at different times. Those people didn't love everything they put out. Those people felt nervous at different times. And those people had to go through a lot to get to the point where you're actually seeing their work. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. It is a value to... I always tell my students also to, like, kind of stalk an artist's career. Mm -hmm. Like, you want what they have, look at everything they did Mm -hmm. to get to that level. Before you... You may have thought they just popped out of thin air. Right. But they probably were working for a long time in obscurity. Mm-hmm. I mean, the best, most dramatic example being Alison Bechdel making Dykes to Watch Out for for like mm-hmm. 25 years with no comics recognition yeah. for the most part, yeah. just amongst like lesbian feminist bookstores. And then all of a sudden, Fun Home comes out and everyone's like, well, sure, this, this person she's yeah. popped out of thin air. Yeah. yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's always a lot more complex than that. And, um, you know, I have a lot of mixed feelings as to looking, you know, quote unquote, looking up to careers in that way too, mm-hmm. because that's you you don't know somebody's life, you know. Yeah. So well, some people. I mean, another thing is, you know, you find out people have day jobs you don't know about. You find out people Absolutely. have family money they that you don't know about. Mm-hmm. They're married to somebody. I mean, there's a lot of things, totally. or yeah. they. I mean, it's somehow empowering for my students, I think, to understand that even cartoonists, they love the most. Like, Dan Klaus isn't doing illustration work for fun. Yeah. He's doing it for money. And so he's continuing to work. And so, you know, capitalist capitalist values of success in America don't necessarily equal artistic success. Mm -hmm. Like, it's like success versus accomplishment, too. Yeah, I mean, that's a big conversation in comics right now as to what what are, you know, reasonable expectations, what can one expect from a career what can one expect from a degree what can what's a fair expectation (laughs) that's like a moving (laughs) benchmark thought process as well but i mean i would not be i would not have the lifestyle that i do um or the life that i do if i didn't do illustration i mean my books have been very successful in their way you know but it's not that i can live off the book <laughs> not in the way that i want to anyway yeah. not in the city that i want well, to or the kind of apartment that i want to um and so uh that's just something to think about it's like people think that you know you have a book or even if the book does well that that means you've made it or that you will be able to op- given the opportunity to do another one that's not necessarily true um it i but I I do think that I, I feel lucky that I entered comics making just assuming that it would be completely subsidized my whole life, right? So I didn't have any expectations of the field yeah. <laughs> or from my books. Yeah. Like, it was always just cherry on top. Like, um, I'm... I like doing it, you know, and like I get positive feedback from it and it's, I, it's interesting to me and I have good friends in this community and like, um, but I don't think it's going to pay for itself. That has not been completely true. I mean, it, it has become part of my income in a substantial way and it's open doors to other things, mm-hmm. but it's, it's like definitely not if I was just relying on like advances and royalty checks, it would not it would be a very different picture. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I would have, like, no teeth. Right. Right. If I was just relying on comics, right. advances, and royalties, I would have no teeth. Yeah. I would live in a punk house mm-hmm. somewhere. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's like, um, it, it it's tough. I mean, I think comics are just such a, a wonderful medium, but now it's getting so a little bit more complicated with as, you know, you can get really expensive degrees to like learn how to do comics and people have they see it being sort of picked up by the publishing industry and you hear how YA comics are like this big thing and it's like it's a lot of change but again like it's the same old thing always with comics it's like what's the the hour the the dollar per hour is just so vanishingly thin because they are so time intensive at least the you know in my experience yeah. so it's like that hasn't changed all these other things have changed the equation I think the, per- the perception of like what comics can do for you have changed but um, yeah <laughs> they're still very like intense intensive. Yeah. Uh, pursuit i hate i feel like such a martyr walking around being like it's so much harder than every other art form but it is so time consuming compared to like i have friends that are writers Mm -hmm. um 
you know, like friends that are writers and then they write, we're at the same residency and they write like, we, they work for three hours and have written like, you know, so much of a chapter of their book and they're like, phew, I am beat. And I'm, you know, and then if you work on a comic for three hours, you have like maybe a half a page or something. Right. And I mean, yeah, I guess everybody's different, but um, I do find that there are a little bit, there, there are changed expectations. Yeah. Um, I've just sort of noticed that in students as well um, from when I started making comics myself too mm-hmm. I feel like you do have to love it it's like I just feel very high school guidance counselor I'm like you know you, you love what you do you never work a day in your life I have felt unemployed for years <laughs> because I've been self-employed yeah because I don't have like an official day job like even teaching I'm like I'm taking on a gig mm-hmm. but I still okay, I feel yeah. unemployed because I'm like I get to wake up when I want to wake up Mm-hmm. I can go hike or do what I want to do, and then you know, like a, I disagree with the you're never going to work a day in your life if you love what you do. That I just don't like. Well, I feel like I have like an oppressive inner demon sure. that lash. There's like a devil dog that's sure. like lashed to my ankle. Sure. That's and I'm like I don't want to do this anymore. I'm like, but you must. Right. That exists. Right. But um, doesn't feel like a. I don't know if it feels like a job. <laughs> Does feel like work? I guess you're yeah, right. Yeah, I guess. I guess I, I find it strange to say, you know, that it's a job, but I feel, I do feel like it's work. Like even being here at SBX this weekend, I do, I realize like I thought, I'm like I have to work this weekend, mm-hmm. you know, because a lot of the, you know, the selling of your book and doing all this stuff, it's like I do view it as work now. Yeah. You know, um, it's a it's a very holistic kind of work in that it's very integrated into my life. I don't have office hours or anything like that, but it is work <laughs> yeah. to me. It is labor. Yeah. yeah, it is work. I think I don't know what I'm. I don't know how to differentiate between like guess the fact that it is holistic and it's just like part of my life now and the way that I've monetized my joys sure. and my hobbies. That's always. Uh, Dangerous a little, little bit, yeah, playing with fire. <laughs> it is playing with fire. There were times when I, I basically stopped keeping a diary for myself because I didn't trust myself to then not publish it later. Oh sure. And so things would happen that I felt were very dear, and I was like, uh, I was like, I don't know, this bitch is gonna publish this. Like she's gonna photocopy this in like six months. So I like stopped keeping a diary, which before I had really enjoyed. Oh, and I had to like take a while and then kind of just creep back into it. So you do keep one now. And yeah. how do you set up the diff- the boundaries then? I do keep a diary now just here and there when extreme things sure. happen one way or the other. But I kind of have, from monetizing my joy, I have forgotten that, you know, I remind myself all the time through the podcast and teaching whatever that, you know, art is like, this is the way I process the world. And so I have to make art, you know, even if, even if fascism reigns, you know, and um, there's not just room for political art, I still need to make art because I still need to process the world in this way. But um, sometimes I'll forget that I have that as an emotional outlet. I'll literally be like, I'm having such intense emotions. I wish there was a way to let these out. Unfortunately, there's not one I could think of. And I remember that I could draw something or write something. And it's, feels insane but i don't i don't I know those are really exciting moments though where yeah. you some things they they haven't made the jump to uh they're so internal and then they jump to being kind of this thing you can observe mm-hmm. and that's always like a really interesting moment i think where you identify a thing <laughs> and before it was just like soup in your head and yeah. i think that that's like a really cool moment where like oh wait wait oh no this is like a thing like or like i find that this experiences in my past too where that was just part of my psyche or my personal history but i never thought of them as particularly interesting or you know worth making a thing about or not necessarily even about that but like extrapolating off of it mm-hmm. um so yeah. yeah. I the only thing I I hold dear now is I don't want to hurt anyone's feelings, and I do autobiographical work. Okay. And so there've been different people in my life where I'm like, what? I'm like, I'm telling my side of the story. I'm you know, including them doing a good thing for every bad thing they're doing. You know, I'm trying to show fair, balanced people on every side. But now, like books I have in my head that I'm like this would be a great book. I'm like, I just don't want to hurt that person's feelings. But and I know that that seems sustainable. That doesn't seem very interesting. <laughs> like, what do you mean? Like not to. Uh, I think it's very admirable to say I don't want to hurt somebody's feelings, but by towing the middle ground, do you explore? Uh, do, do you feel beholden to that balance? You know what I'm saying? I don't know. I mean, I 
I have to say that I have definitely written things without towing any kind of middle ground. You know, like, I've just tried to make them complicated characters and not just be like, my mom's a fucking bitch. Like, you know, just be like, here's her trying her best, here's her feeling shame around the thing, and then that affected my life in this way. So you don't feel a need to fictionalize to actually be a little bit more uh, direct or even biased. I mean, like, we walk around with biases all the time. Like, I really fucking hated when you did that. And I just thought it was like, you're just a bitch. Like, so you, you don't feel that urge to fictionalize too. It's, I feel lashed to the truth. Okay. And so it's hard. And like, even like when I was proposing my first book, it felt very vulnerable. It was like a lot of family secrets. And I actually tried a version of it with my literary agent where I was like, it's fiction. The character is this person. And she was like, it's not interesting that way. It's interesting because it actually happened to a real person. Okay. Okay. So I was like, all right. Cause it's my natural thing that sure. I rest. So I was trying sure. to like do that. She has red hair. Yeah. Instead of brown She's hair. She's significantly different. <laughs> yeah. So now, you know, I change people's features or whatever, but, um, but for upcoming books, I just, it's funny though, because a big trend in books these days is to have your same name. Oh you yeah. You know, like, um, I just, I'm now I'm totally like Sheila Hetty and like how to be a person, how should a person be or whatever. Or like yeah. the, yeah, the person's name is Sheila or whatever. Yeah. Or like some, it, like, where you use your real name, even though you're going to say it's fictionalized. I have noticed this trend. It's like interesting. I wonder if there is like a weird, it represents that tension of reality fiction. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I think it would be less stressful to be a fiction writer. Okay. I yeah. think yeah. because as yeah. it is, I have like a, I have a little sack of burdens. Who knows? Someday in therapy, I'll just kind of spread sure. them out somewhere of people that I'm like, sorry. Yeah. Sorry yeah. I wrote about your secrets. Yeah. But at the time, I'm like, it's my right. It's my story. Yeah. You know? Right. Right. I don't know. But, <laughs> but so, yeah, moving forward, my only boundary is I'm like, I'm kind of, I feel a little bit exhausted of embarrassing other people. Sure. For a moment. So. Has, have they confronted you about the about being hey I didn't like that and that you're that's me and I don't like that well my family trolled me for a minute after okay. my first book came sure. out like my mom gave me a one star Amazon review oh my god wow right and she, and then my stepdad was calling and thre- almost, threatening like, me you almost, you almost want to put that on the back of the reprint I you know that's, that's a good pretty, idea pretty funny like put her whole review yeah yeah absolutely I, I would Recently, friends of mine have been like, you need to tell her to take that down. And I was like, I didn't even realize that was an option. <laughs> it is funny. Because now well, people... She's entitled to her... Re- you're entitled to make her a re- book about her. your story. And she's entitled to her opinion. Yeah. If she feels so strongly, she's going to put a one-star review on her daughter's book. I don't even read reviews, but I was like, oh, a one-star, that's usually somebody who's pretty... Sure. You're generally mentally ill and something. Like, somebody that hates a lot of stuff. Yeah, yeah. You could go down a rabble of everything they give in one-star yes. reviews to, yeah. but then I was like, oh, yeah, my mom's name and the town she lives. Oh. Like, I just, like, after all I went through... Did t- she say it was, this is my daughter's, oh. No, oh, she's really like, fun. this is a sad story. I put it right back on the shelf. It seems oh like God. if her father wanted to find her, he could have. This seems more about the person who wrote it than the people it's supposed to be about. Yeah, no shit. Yeah. That's what a book is. <laughs> I wish that you were there as like a like That's, comment, p- p- counter comment. That's really hilarious. That's yeah. really interesting. I didn't find it till months after she had written it. And so it felt at that point like we had already smoothed things over. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I don't know. Right, of course she Of course she did that. Did, was, did Have you ever been um, with people in your books where they were like, I didn't know that was the way you felt about it? Um, not yet. They haven't okay, said that to my face yet. Yeah. Some people have said like, oh, it's interesting to know you and then to know these things that I didn't know. Oh, okay. But no one's, I've said that I did diary comics with a friend for a long time and his filter of me is so different mm-hmm. than how I intend. Yeah. That he, I would be like, I would say something and then he would write me being like, fuck you, you know, I'm a bitch. Like, I just, like, once I was talking to him about how little kids, I don't know if you've taught little, like, younger kids, but sometimes they'll draw, like, a soccer game from above, and it essentially looks like a pool table. It's like a a rectangle with a bunch of little dots on it, but to them, it's like, so, like, oh, and this guy's doing this, and this guy's doing this, and so I was saying to my friend who I did comics with, I was like, Oh god, I hate when they try to draw a soccer game from above. It always sucks. And then he paraphrased me saying, "All kids comics suck. Our kids comics always suck." And I was like, "No!" Because empowerment is one of my sure. 
motivating things in life and of teaching. Sure, sure. And so I was like, this can't be. Yeah. And you misunderstood me. Yeah. <laughs> that's, I guess that's the danger of being an autobiographical cartoonist, hanging out with other autobiographical cartoonists. Sure. You know. Sure. Not to be a Seinfeld, but have you ever noticed that I never try to sell you Blue Apron on the podcast? Or that we do not disparage and bemoan trips to the post office in favor of stamps.com? Well, it is because we have no advertisers. Zero. Producer Chris, producer Ponyo, and myself do this out of the goodness of our hearts, because we like it. If you would like to tip producer Chris Sutton, who dedicates hours to this series every week, Please, 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 please send your tip of $5, $10, who knows how much. That's your business via PayPal to hornetleg at gmail.com. That is hornet, like the insect, leg, like one of his appendages, at gmail.com. If you do this, we will read your name on the podcast. Isn't that exciting? We may have advertisers someday and we'll rant and rave about free sex toys and mattresses and blue apron and whatever but in the meantime thank you we appreciate your support and i look forward to saying your name on the podcast producer ponyo looks forward to it too that was ponyo's voice don't be scared bye all right questions for you what is your perfect work environment or your perfect job like like gig yeah, your perfect work environment either being, like, your space or project. I can't think of a perfect project, but I do have, like, nice little patches that I enjoy, and that's when I have, like, just the right amount of jobs that I'm juggling. I don't really like having just one big book, say, you know? Um, I li- I love... That's why I still do a lot of editorial illustration. Well, not a lot. It goes and comes and goes, but I still do take editorial illustration jobs or book covers or whatever because I like a shorter deadline. I like that things don't take a year to make. <laughs> so I I really like having you know a bigger job in the background and then smaller jobs, kind of that have like a couple week deadlines, but there nothing's too pressing that you can't sort of flow you know like Mm -hmm. you can go swimming in the day I do all the things that make being a freelancer worth it like where you can go running when it's you know nice out and swimming if it's a nice summer day and it's not not crowded because it's Tuesday morning or something like that that's Mm -hmm. what I like you know where it's like kind of you feel busy but not hurried (laughs) and actually I do work hard to try to get that because you if you just say yes to everything um then you you're just going to be frazzled and unhappy so I do actually work pretty hard to try to get that balance you know how so one of my friends he learned in art school he felt like an an assignment either neither needed to have money time or freedom yeah you need two two of the three Mm-hmm. Was the thing, yeah, yeah. yeah. What are what are your t- do you have a preference of which ones? Always, I mean, very rarely now do I take a job that is just a lot of money, mm-hmm. like, but no freedom. Like I would rather do more jobs that pay less, but have more free. Like ideally, they're a lot of money and a lot of freedom. Yeah, <laughs> that doesn't always happen, but you know. um I just know myself too well that I, I, that's why I don't do a lot of advertising Mm because I don't, well, first of all, I don't think my work is that advertising friendly, but then I also, I get too angry. I get too control freaky. I get too, um, you know, a lot of times with some of these jobs that, you know, they're where they're a lot of money, it's like a lot more input you know a lot more uh pressure from a lot of people on a committee or a focus group or something like that and it just feels like uh, you know you become a hired hand and i that's just the my most hated feeling it doesn't feel like you're a valued human being you're just a they'd rather you just be a robot and just do the thing and execute the thing and like that's just never the kind of job i enjoy i just want to 
die like by the end of it and I that's not a healthy feeling that's not why I yeah do this right so um I try to sometimes you cannot avoid those situations well, so can be, you see them now like are the red flags for them where you're oh, like yeah 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 um and luckily it has been that you know the longer I've done it the more people sometimes not, but not always people sometimes think like oh you have a name now like people let you do whatever I'm like are you kidding me no like people absolutely are are directing me and telling me what to do sometimes and whatever but um but I do really feel them out and try to ask around like oh I saw a friend did a job with this person like what are they like to work with blah blah blah, blah. so um so I do do my research before I <laughs> take a job and but sometimes you know what the money is good enough that mm-hmm. you are willing to be like, all right, you know what? But I'd rather know that I'm going to get bossed around mm-hmm. <laughs> on this job and I'm going to be, you know, yes. Okay, sure. Yep. Yep. Okay. You want the background to be this instead of that? Fine. You know, like, but you know, I like knowing that going in and knowing that I'm going to be compensated for that effort. The worst is when, you know, and this can happen a lot if you don't know the warning signs is like, people can feel entitled to boss you around not paying you anything you know so mm-hmm. yeah i yeah. is that generally be people that aren't used to working with illustrators in exactly well, yeah. that way i mean i only that and this was a rule i started pretty soon after i started freelancing was just i don't work with non-professionals you know that people that aren't used to hiring illustration it's just and again, it's like nothing against you know um the average Great person goal. but it's just it 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 saves you so sorry right. you say it saves you so much like trouble <laughs> that's i i do pet portraits on commission mm-hmm. and the thing about it that's difficult which i i feel like it's okay to say is that it's generally people that have never that for them sure. it, for them it's a lot of money right exactly. for me for a painting or something it's not a lot of money i am pricing it that way because that's the minimum i need to be paid and it's you know that many hours of my time but for them it's a lot of money so then people will feel really entitled to have it be the most perfect thing and they're not totally sure how to talk to an artist about how to get that thing and so that's that's when i get into trouble when our senses of value are or different or, yeah. or because they're not they're not art directors yeah um and so that's kind of I, I actually took a break from pet portraits for a few years because it stressed me out too much mm-hmm. but now i'm back because i just i love drawing pets yeah my preference is to draw a dead pet or a gift because then the dead pet the people are so grateful and yeah, excited like to anything. see yeah. they see their animal again they're like oh my god you're here yeah. and then but if it's a gift also the person generally they're you not know, as attached. Yeah. yeah, and so then the person getting it is happy no matter what because it has their dog's name on it, so that's how they know it's their dog. Sure, sure. Even if I mixed up the eye color or something, you know, yeah. not I not that I do that, but um, <laughs> those are my ideal ones. But yeah. my nightmare, actually, once I had an art director who gave she Frankenstein together a photo from like fifteen different photos. And she was like, I want the ear from photo number two. I want no, the eye I from the- I just be like, you know, this is the process. What, what Sort of what we're talking about is it's a... You're, when you work with a professional, they're familiar, ideally, <laughs> with the process of commercial art. And it's very specific, you mm-hmm. know? And um, not even every professional is so good <laughs> with the process. <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, I think that that's, like, the big difference. It's not that they're bad people or whatever, no. but they just don't know the expectations of, like, how the process works. Or that the thing they're asking you for is, like way different than how other people ask or what people ask yeah, for yeah and then how would they know that they yeah, wouldn't exactly yeah, they wouldn't know right but so all that said what is your we may have already answered this but i was going to ask you what your nightmare work environment was be it either a job or like you having i don't know if you ever work outside of your own space mm-hmm. i do yeah i love working in the library and coffee shops if i if it's not too annoying a coffee shop mm-hmm. <laughs> i mean but i love working outside of my my apartment is my my studio is made my apartment so anytime i can get out but i usually i often can't because my materials are there but um i love working out if i'm writing or something i usually go to a library um my but i think it would be just what i said but in yeah. terms of nightmare is when you it sometimes you just realize like oh you know what they you're just a a person to a hired hand you know you're like the executor of the thing and i do have a theory a lot of the time the the worst art directors to work with are the ones that can draw (laughs) 
Yes. <laughs> because they have such a specific... They see it in their own mind, you know? I think, like, the best collaborators, whether it's a writer or whoever, they are open to that 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 frisson, mm-hmm. you know? And that... Um, they're open to just being surprised and delighted and not having an image attached to what they're doing. And, um, and that's the best kind of clever. I actually was talking to my cousin who I've done a lot of books with, and she said that she doesn't think in images, which to me is like so crazy. Cause I'm just, you know, obviously very visual, but she's like, Oh, I, you know, she's much more of an audio person, mm-hmm. you know, like, um, that she doesn't think in images. I'm like, that's, that's I think probably why you're such a good collaborator with cartoonists is that you don't have this like pre prescribed like this is what the person looks like, this is what this scene looks like, blah blah blah. Like mm-hmm. so you're not the artist isn't trying to like hit some sort of bullseye target, yeah. you know, that already exists and they don't know. That's so crazy. This really translates. I've been taking this like weird online Shonda Rhimes master class in screenwriting. Okay. So she's taught and but on all the screenwriting books I'm reading you know, it's basically like, don't write exactly what you want your character to look like yeah. because you don't know. You want to you want to let the actor surprise you yeah. and bring you something that's even more than yeah. what you could have imagined. Sure. And don't write exact direction how the actors say things unless you really need to because yeah. they might take take it and run with it in a direction that enhances it. Yeah. And it feels the same way with collaborations, what you're saying. I mean, the most important part of art direction or any collaboration is picking the right people. You know, like... That is really the skill, you know what I mean? And, like, the most important part of the process. And then trusting that person, right? And then, like, their natural... Because it was a good fit, then that that it increases the likelihood of it being a success. Yeah, I've had people hire me for things, and then I deliver them something that looks very much like my other work, and they're like, oh, no. no. Yeah. Can you make it look more real? Yeah. I'm like... My brain can't do that. Yeah, yeah, this, yeah. This looks like a photo to me. Right, right. <laughs> and then everyone's disappointed. Yeah. Um, what are your favorite tools? Just a micron. Really? I mean, if I could just draw, like, in a pen, mm-hmm. <laughs> pen and ink, like, I would be happy. I would never do anything in color. I would never paint anything. I would never do anything. But the fact of the matter is, is that... Uh, I, I think it would have been feasible almost like if it had been 60 years ago mm-hmm. uh, where, you know, about black and white books would have been, a you know, much more common. Now I feel like if you even propose anything black and white, it feels like there's something missing, which is like too bad because I think it's like very beautiful. But it just isn't. Um, uh, it's not people want full color because they can have full color. And that's yeah. like the baseline now. But I think it's like a little bit of a shame. <laughs> Somebody just asked me, they're like, why do you work in black and white? And I was like, because I came up in a time where you had to reproduce it yourself and you you couldn't get color. Yeah. You know, if you're a millionaire. Yeah. So that's kind of why I'm so oriented towards black and white. It's beautiful. Right. I like like when you do stuff that has red in it, personally. (laughs) I've seen illustrations of yours. Um, You, all right, getting towards the end, you have like a very powerful Twitter presence. Has that helped or influenced your work and how do you how do you look at social media do you do it is it just like this is my hobby Uh or is it integrated in some other way oh sure i mean it's i mean it's interesting it's i've always loved the internet (laughs) i mean since i was 14 and got the internet (laughs) like i love chatting on yahoo chat rooms i was on prodigy that was like our first thing but like just loved chatting loved meeting strangers online and like sending the mail like I'm always I would I don't want to brag but I'm a pretty great pen pal really yes so so bad at it so like I but I love sending people mail I love getting mail love sending people mail and um so um I've always loved the internet and like that form of communication and like It's, like, incredible that you can, like, talk to somebody on this. Like, really, truly, we're so used to it now, but, like, still, like, that was just so powerful to me (laughs) at the time, right? It changed my life. Yeah. So, um, so I feel like I've just kind of followed whatever, you know, version of that it updates to every couple years. Mm -hmm. Like, I've just sort of 
oh, we're doing Facebook now. I'm not on Facebook now, but like, we're on Fate, we're on MySpace, we're on Facebook, we're on blah, blah, blah. I was on never on Friendster, but like, and so I've just kind of always updated it, yeah. you know? And so, um, in terms of, and I'm also the type of, and I do feel like I do come by this a little honestly, is that I just love sharing my work, you know, like, and it's, I don't view that as, I know there can be kind of a sinister side to that where you feel people, and I, I see it a little bit in the illustration community where they feel like it's a compulsion or something, or they're over, they're thinking really hard about how to share it and how it's affecting the way they work and they feel controlled by this social media mm-hmm. behemoth thing or whatever um, or the opinions of it and um, but I, I have but I do think that there is something really pure about like a lot of illustrators become illustrators and not you know artists in the way that you want to not artists but like you want to share your work in a really direct way mm-hmm. and um, I made this thing let me show it to you right yeah. so like that's why I started you know Blogspot you know back in the day and like was putting stuff on my like online sketchbook like just because I love showing people what I made yeah <laughs> just like a really like I think innocent like impulse right yeah. um, and then just I just think it's fun like yeah. I and again I do feel like Twitter has become something else and like I used to have a much more like casual relationship to it but now you know in my like front-facing main Twitter where, you know, you have, um, I think it's a very powerful communication tool to people that follow your work. And mm-hmm. I still think there is room for fun on it, but I don't look to that as any sort of real validation of my work. Yeah. It's a tool to promote what I'm doing or yeah. like not even promote, like just inform people, you know, or like keeping contact with people that are interested in what I do so um, I try not to overthink it beyond that (laughs) I'm like deep in a social media spiral of like marketing right now yeah but um it can be like really overwhelming and I and I am so glad that I when I started it was not as kind of to the level it is now where um I uh I mean I've made a pretty concerted effort to never have an photos of myself online like when I started I was really like concerned with don't you know judge me by how I look I don't want you you know Mm -hmm. they just look at my work you know Mm -hmm. um and I I've heard you know from now now when people are starting especially young women they feel like they have to share that like personal side of themselves Mm -hmm. and their life and um if that comes by you naturally then like all the power to it you know what i mean we all do this thing really differently but um that's not really who i am so i'm glad that i never had to feel that pressure you know um and uh and i think that's a shame where you know you really feel like you have to have a, a physical image to go along with like your artwork you know yeah you need to brand yourself yeah i feel like that's like that's asking for like almost like we were talking about okay, your talent of making work and then your work ethic, your professionalism. And then there is this like third thing of like your, or maybe that goes in with your professional skills and how, but like, yeah, like branding or blah, blah, blah. I hate that word, but you know, yeah. it's like quote well, unquote branding because there are just so many people now trying to do this. Whereas when I did, when I started, I felt like it wasn't, that hard yeah (laughs) because I you know was uh, making very female centric work and um, it was very narrative and I didn't I didn't feel like there were tons of other people doing that you know so yeah well do you have any last minute advice for young artists or anything you want to tell listeners while you have their ears as we wrap this up uh no (laughs) Don't kill yourself. Yeah, like, keep at it. Uh, Reach for the stars. Start an Instagram feed or something. You don't have to put yourself... Being being cute is not your your rent for being a woman. I mean, oh, well, you know, is... Oh, you know what? To tie it back to the front, Mm -hmm. um, 
I said this in one of my like last classes that I taught um, because you know the usually they are all girls in my classes and they're they're really concerned you know they're really worried as to like how they're gonna be able to make it and of course you have to be like I don't know if you're gonna be able to make it nobody knows right like and I and they how do I do it how do I have a how do I market myself how do I be online blah 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 and I'm just like there's more than one way to skin a cat and they did not know what that meant. <laughs> they did not. They had they never. Were, they had never heard that expression before. And I was like, "Wow!" Now I really feel old and mean. Like and you're I, a crazy yeah, and I feel like a animal abuser now. But my point was was that there are many ways to go about. It. Just because you see it working for somebody else, you don't necessarily need to do it that way. You uh, it, for yes. your own longevity, you really need to find a way that works for you, and that's different for everybody. But yeah. Yeah. yeah, thanks. Can I ask you, how did you know? How could you tell that they had never heard that expression before? Because they literally, like, what What are you talking about? Like, ah! Like, they were, like, <laughs> really, like, I don't know what that means. That's really creepy, what you just said. <laughs> I was just like, oh, wow. You're like, very popular just, saying. Yeah, I, I thought that was a folk saying. I I guess not. I don't know. You were like, rule no. of thumb, yeah. guy. And they were like, oh, how much, yeah, yeah. how big you're allowed to beat your wife? And you're like, Wait, never mind, never mind. Okay, well, thanks for being on the podcast. Yeah, thank you, Nicole. Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton with assistance by Ponyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.